dealing with me for my family and friends were like walking on eggshells, like walking a field of landmines. They had to be very, very careful of what they said or else I would blow up. We'd have an argument or worse. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Hello and welcome. Our guest today is former Marine Sergeant and Vietnam veteran Randy Zemmel. Randy enlisted in the Marines in 1965. He served until 1969 and served in Vietnam with the 1st Marine Division from 1966 to 68. He grew up in Chicago, spent his working life, though, in Milwaukee. And in May of 19, uh, of 2019, he participated in something that, uh, as he tells us, changed his life. And we're going to hear about all of that today in this segment of the Stigma Free Vet Zone. First, let's meet our guest. Morning, Randy. Good morning, Bob. And good morning to uh, our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind, your upbringing, your family. Was it a military family in any way or, or not? Well, I grew up in, um, in Chicago, born in uh, 1944. Grew up on the north side of Chicago. Lived with my mom and dad and two sisters. It was a good lower middle class family, a good family. And our extended family was a very large family with a lot of cousins. I was really the first one to go into uh, military service from all my cousins. Uh, they either had deferments or um, they had businesses to run. And uh, But I was really the first one to join the Marines and, and go into military service, which I did in um, signing up in Des Plaines, Illinois in 1965, was sent off to Marine Corps boot camp, of all things, on April 1st, 1965. <laughs> so it was kind of a rude um, awakening or an all-nighter, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in San Diego, California. Beautiful San Diego, California, although wasn't really a great welcoming to the city of San Diego by uh, my drill instructor that evening. 
Now, you enlisted, and of course, these were the years of the, of the draft. Men 18 and older were being drafted, that is to say, taken into the armed forces, uh, oftentimes against their, their wishes. But you chose to uh, enlist, and as you said, was really among the first in your family to ever really do that. What was the reaction from your extended family? Were they surprised or worried about you? Or do you remember how they reacted? My mom especially was horrified when I came home and said I enlisted in the Marine Corps during the Vietnam era. Of course, mom wanted to meet me to become a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, one of those great professions. But in my early days, I really didn't see the importance of education and schooling. I was a rather poor student, a D student in high school. The only reasons they gave me um, D or D minuses in classes where the teachers didn't want to have me back the next year. So I guess D minus was passing. I really wasn't going in the right direction. I probably didn't realize it at, at the moment, but I wasn't involved in organized sports. I didn't have the right kind of friends that were going in the right direction either. I guess they were D students also. And I guess I realized that maybe I need to change the course of direction. And I went to the recruiter in um, Des Plaines, Illinois, in the shadows of O'Hare, a northern suburb. And I maybe I saw too many John Wayne movies or watched Boomer Pyle or liked the uniform or liked what the um, uh, recruiter had to say. So I signed the papers and I came home. But mom was horrified. And with a war going on in Vietnam, it was not a good situation. But uh, I think she wanted to go see the. I think she wanted to go see the recruiter and see if she could get me out of it. But that wasn't going to happen. I was in the Marine Corps. And off you went. My goodness. And um, it seems to me in those years, training was uh, was pretty rapid. I mean, boot camp didn't last very long and infantry school and all of those things. Was it that way? Did you go through the various schools pretty quickly and then get assigned and orders to Vietnam? Yep. Went through boot camp. It was, it was a rude awakening for this young guy. We got to boot camp in the middle of the night and drove around the hills of San Diego for quite a while and uh, <clears throat> got to Marine Corps Recruit Depot and stood on the yellow footprints for the rest of the night. Then we went to the barracks. Well, Quonset huts. I don't know if they were called barracks. They were Quonset huts in those days, which I, I think are long gone, but took off all our clothes, put them in a box and the drill instructor um, not so kindly said, Close them up, send them to your girlfriend, your mom, or whomever, but you're getting new clothes here. Then we got a haircut, taking a little bit off the sides, as they said, 30-second haircut. And uh, we got our yellow, we didn't really get a uniform, we got a yellow sweatshirt. Uh, We weren't quite a Marine yet, and we didn't even have utensils to eat with. We were uh, a boot camp recruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to rifle range, went to Camp Pendleton, shot all the weapons. And I personally never shot a rifle before boot camp, but then it was off to, off to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. 
What was your initial reaction upon arriving in Vietnam and, and what was your job over there? I was, I had various jobs, electronic tech warfare, technical uh, work at the airport, mostly in Chuai, in Da Nang, uh, at the airports, and then out in the field with um, uh, some infantry platoons. My initial reaction, being in a country far, far away, the um, recruiter did tell me I was going to go to a uh, tropical uh, country. I didn't quite think of it as that. But mm-hmm. getting off the airplane, I quickly realized that think that, that it wasn't paradise. People were in an awful rush. We flew there on a commercial jet um, out of O'Hare with a few others, but quickly got off the aircraft. The engines didn't stop running. They hustled us off the aircraft. They hustled the other troops on, and they took off and got out of town very, very quickly. Um, I also noticed we were trained. We were beat to death with when you saw an officer. What did you do? You better be saluting an officer, right? Well, there were guys that saluted officers, and they were told very, very quickly to not be doing that. And the reason why there were eyes in the bushes and they were watching what was going on. And those officers didn't want to be saluted because they wanted to live. So you didn't do that. I remember to this day, I have it etched in my mind, the smell of Vietnam. It was hot, humid, tropical, a very, very strange, fishy, marijuana type smell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very, very, very strange right off the bat. Of course, the officers didn't want to be saluted because they didn't want to be identified as officers, perhaps by the enemy, and try to stay and blend in as, as much as possible. And, uh, interesting lesson to learn early on, I think, in your arrival. How long were you there? I was in um, Vietnam in country from uh, 1966 to 1968. So I was there for for basically two tours of, mm-hmm. of duty. Wow. Uh, and then you came home, and uh, you, at that point, I believe you were a sergeant. Did you have any uh, thought of staying on and perhaps becoming a staff uh, non-commissioned officer? That would be a staff sergeant. Or were you just anxious to get out and, and go back home? Well, from Vietnam, I went to Barstow, California. It's in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, never been there before between uh, uh, Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And I sat on a um, locker box. That's what I was told to do. Just sit here and wait for somebody to come and get you. Well, eventually somebody came and got me and um, went to the CO, I guess the captain's uh, office, and back to saluting officers. Now that I'm back in the States, salute officers or else it wouldn't have been a good program. And they asked me if I was ready to sign up for another well, six or eight years in, in the Marine Corps. And they would give me my wishes or um, free SOS breakfast for ever. But anyways, I, um, I decided to not take advantage of that and go back and sit on the locker box and wait for my discharge papers and go home. And how was it coming home? Well, the first 
the first thing I knew something was kind of strange when they said or suggested that I not wear my uniform home, but go get some Kmart civvies and wear that. Really? Why? And the reason why there were not a lot of um, friendly people in Chicago. Um, A lot of people that were against the war, against what we were doing, that were going to call us baby killers, maybe do some harm to us. But it wasn't going to be a a good day in the neighborhood if we were wearing our Marine Corps uniform. Uh, And they knew we were in Vietnam. And so we didn't wear it. There was a lot of anti-war people and a lot of protesters and all those kind of things. So not a good time to be running around in a uniform. Do you remember how that made you feel back in those in uh, at that time? Well, I I knew in Barstow, I knew from uh, well, you know, in Vietnam we had the Stars and Stripes uh, newspaper. Uh, I, I believe that was what it was called. Mm-hmm. So we know there was a, a lot of things going on at home that weren't very positive for us. So I was a little bit prepared, but. You know, being a patriot, being a being a marine, being with all my buddies that didn't make it home, uh, it was not a pleasant time. I kind of worked through it. It was very very difficult, and but I decided, as long as I did make it home, I was alive. I ended up going to school and using the GI Bill and taking advantage of that. And how'd that go? That went real well for a uh, D-minus high school student that didn't care about an education. And and a Marine, I don't know how much intelligence I had, um, but I went to school on the north side of Chicago at a teaching college, teaching university, Northeastern Illinois State Teachers College. I got my teaching degree in special education, of all things. Mm -hmm. I guess I was a special education uh, United States Marine. So I, I picked that as a specialty, got all A's and was on the honor roll. And did you teach? I did teach for a, a little over a year or two in Chicago, but the assignment they gave us young teachers, being in a Marine Corps, being in Vietnam, they decided to put me in a uh, area of Chicago in the Cabrini Green area and other areas that were not very favorable, peaceful, caring and loving and everything. And I, I quickly realized that maybe I was in the wrong area, the wrong profession. Uh, but that's where they put new teachers that didn't have a lot of tools to sure. handle being in those situations. So I I ended up saying to myself that maybe this isn't for me. I uh, I got through Vietnam, I got an, an education, all A's, and I guess I didn't want to end my life in the city of Chicago as mm-hmm. a teacher, and so I decided to do some other things. So you came north to uh, Milwaukee, and uh, after some period of time, began work as an air traffic controller of all things. Quite a difference there between the teaching profession and air traffic control, a profession you had for 35 years. Is that right? Yeah, quite a quite a different profession. Uh, uh-huh. Air traffic controllers, uh, I saw an 
advertisement for a, a need for air traffic controllers. And uh, I really didn't know exactly what air traffic controllers were. I thought those were the the guys that were guiding in the airplanes to the gate using those red wands or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I quickly realized what the job was and I um, became an air traffic controller at Mitchell field uh, for well over 33 years, actually wow. close to 35 years as a uh, civil federal civil service employee and Worked my way up as a air as an air traffic controller supervisor. Well, air traffic controller ended up in the training department in the uh, air traffic control tower, and that's the one. If you go to Mitchell Field, that's the tallest building on uh, mm-hmm. on the airport. The greatest view at the airport, and sure. uh, and was a supervisor, and it was a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Well, it must have been about 10 years after you started then that there was, uh, folks may remember, those from this area, the Milwaukee or Wisconsin area for that matter, a tragic uh, plane crash there in 1985, September of 85, when a then uh, Midwest uh, Airlines jet uh, crashed virtually after takeoff and within plain view of the tower. Were you on duty that day? I remember that well. I um, I can't remember a lot of things like where I put my reading glasses or my car keys that I put down 30 seconds ago, but I remember being up in the tower that morning when Midwest Express took off and developed engine problems immediately and blew an engine and ended up rolling over and crashing into uh, the intersection of Howell and College Avenue, uh, just right off the airport, uh, an unsurvivable accident. And I was there right in the tower this morning and watched it happen, as well as being there on the day 9-11 happened. Right. What was, uh, first of all, the Midwest Express uh, tragedy, more than 30 people killed in that one. Did that in any way bring up memories uh, of Vietnam? It really didn't, Bob. I, one thing about being an air traffic controller is during an emergency, you were extremely well-trained. We had senior, very experienced staff at Mitchell Field, um, I guess lifers, lifer air traffic controllers. And we were trained to get the job done and take care of the emergency right away, immediately. Mm-hmm. Call the, um, the uh, airport fire department, get them out. Time is of the essence. Um, seconds mean everything. So you didn't have time to think. It really didn't affect me um, that morning watching it or even afterwards. And at that time, I didn't make any connection to um, – what happened later in my life with PTSD and the connection to um, the Vietnam experience. Uh, It was all about work for me. I loved the job with Midwest Express. It was extremely terrible to watch it, to be there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know, you had a job to do and you had to do it. And you dealt with the emergencies every, every day. I dealt with 
emergencies, uh, very, very, very minor emergencies mm -hmm. to very, very large emergencies like with Mid Midwest Express. We also, I dealt with um, Air Force One coming in and dealing with um, Secret Service and dealing with the VIPs and those kind of things. So that's what we did. And um, maybe, maybe, I, maybe with the PTSD that I had and didn't know it, it helped me with hypervigilance, mm -hmm. um, very, very good hearing, hearing five or six conversations at one time, but I really didn't make the connection on, on what was to later happen to me later on in my life. Well, and that's what I want to talk about next with you, Randy. We're speaking with Randy Zemmel. He is a Marine veteran who served in the Marines from 1965 to 69 and then in Vietnam from 1966 to uh, 68. So the career that you had uh, in, in air traffic control was, needless to say, very demanding and required a great deal of uh, uh, really being in the present tense, I would think. You needed to pay attention to what was happening in the here and now. But when you retired, it sounds to me as if things changed and changed rather dramatically. You no longer had that disciplined uh, profession that uh, you had worked at uh, so diligently for all those years. And now you had time and, and really in some ways time to think. Is that when some of the Vietnam experiences that uh, were uncomfortable began to take shape in your mind's eye? Exactly, Bob. It all, it all happened very dramatically, maybe more than just slowly, but it all happened after retirement, uh, during my uh, years of being an air traffic controller, there's no doubt about it. I was a workaholic. I went in four o'clock in the morning, worked different shifts, came back later on in the afternoon. I was consumed with a great job and doing the best job I could do. When I retired, idle mind, things started to happen. Nightmares, lack of sleep, flashbacks, the memories of 50-some years ago were all coming up front. Ne the negativity, hopelessness, difficult relationships, which directly affected friends and family, lack of interest. I had a great deal of interest in, um, in doing a lot of things, and those all went away. I guess I was emotionally numb emotionally unstable. How about being an air traffic controller, as you said, with a great deal of need for concentration every second. I could hear every word. I could hear the tones in people's voices. But after I retired, concentration went out the window. Mm -hmm. Night sweats, uh, suspicious of everything, lack of trust, on guard with everything. Didn't want to go out, anger, aggressive behavior, easily startled. Mm -hmm. I was part of this air traffic control team when there was no room for any of that. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was scary to my family. It was scary to my friends. It was something that I didn't have any idea what the heck was going on. How did your wife react to this? She was scared to help. She was scared, scared of what was going on. She didn't understand what was going on, but my yelling, 
my screaming at night. She wasn't getting much sleep, but it was more than that. It was a, a it was a loving wife who cared a lot, but was removed a little bit, you know, standoffish because sure. she didn't quite know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. She didn't know what was going on. But, you know, as this went on and on and on and it got worse and worse and worse, it wasn't going to get better, Bob. I wasn't at the age of, at the age of 65 years old, uh, I, I, I kind of realized I wasn't going to, uh, uh, mature out of what I was going, mm-hmm. what I was dealing with. I, uh, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a cold. It wasn't take two aspirins. It wasn't rest, get more rest, which I wasn't going to get. So I needed some help or my wife suggested that I, I really get some help, like run and get some help. Well, she, oddly enough, she didn't know about PTSD. She didn't know about the military. You know, Bob, we don't, we don't talk about our experiences to our, our, our family, our friends, but we could talk to somebody wearing a military cap in a bar. We could talk to them four hours about our experience. But my wife mentioned something which I thought was kind of interesting. Was maybe go to the VA and see somebody for some help. Well, did you? I didn't at the beginning, as you know. I I didn't want to go to the VA. I didn't need help. I could work this out. I'm a Marine. I'm an air traffic controller. I'm a guy that, you know, I don't go to doctors. Uh, I could work this out. Well, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can. I think it's something that I realized after an amount of time that I needed some help. And I guess, I guess Bob, I, I, I kind of chuckle and say, you know what? I didn't need my wife ragging on me every single day, but she wanted to get me some help. She was aware of something that was tragically wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I, went, I ended up going to the VA. There's a block, the great Zablocki VA. Mm-hmm. And I did go with some hesitation. I drove down there and I went to the emergency mental health um, area and sat down and talked. Quite a choice, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It, um, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty scary. Um, yeah. Mental health issue, I guess. Well, mm-hmm. I quickly realized that it was. I quickly realized that I needed help. I was in trouble. But we're a little bit hesitant to go to the doctor much less see a psychiatrist, Bob, because mm-hmm. you know what? Kind of the fear of they're going to keep me here. They're going to give me some drugs. They're going to sit me down in a corner or put me or lock me up. I wasn't going to have any part of it, Bob. I had things to do, places to go, bars to go to, people to see. Not many people to see, but I had things to do. I wasn't going to stay at the VA. It's amazing, isn't it, that, um, you know, we many of us served in maybe the scariest place on earth when we were young, and that was a war zone in Vietnam. And we dealt somehow with the fear or terror that came along with that. But here in later life, when we're faced with this uh, absolute necessity to try to do something about ourselves, to take some action that requires opening up to somebody else, it's a fear that can rival the worst fear we ever had in our life. I, I just see that as being such an irony. Do you ever think about that? Yeah. And opening up. Yeah. Bob, you know, we don't open up. Mm-hmm. We're a, we're a closed knit group, 
Brotherhood. We could talk to other Marines. We could talk to other veterans, but we don't open up. We don't open up to our problems, our family. And, you know, during this, I could start seeing that the peace and the happiness of family and friends were very much complicated Mm -hmm. by my situation. I needed help. And I was, I was taking the quality of life of my loving family mm-hmm. down and making life very complicated, making them scared. It was dealing with me for my family and friends were like walking on eggshells, like walking a field of landmines. They had to be very, very careful of what they said or else I would blow up. We'd have an argument or worse. So it was very damaging to the relationship, to family and friends. And I needed to do something for them as well as myself. I knew, going back to air traffic control and airplanes, I I, I use the analogy or whatever is, you know, if you've ever been on an airplane and it would depressurize for some reason, what's the first thing that happens is the air, the Uh, oxygen masks come down. Well, what's the very first thing you want to do? You want to put that mask on first. You want to take care of yourself first and suck some of that oxygen because you only got 30 seconds or a minute or whatever it is. And then you're going down and then you're going to be a burden to everybody. That's not good. So do something for yourself first which will take care of the rest of the situation. And that's what I did by going to the VA and and getting some help. I didn't know what I had, but I quickly realized what I had because I had a good therapist that gave me a book called Tears of a Warrior, which is a, a family story of combat and living with PTSD. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. Was I going to read it at that moment? Heck no. I wasn't going to read a 200 page, page book. I wasn't that good of a reader. You know, I'm a Marine, you know, I need yeah. pictures. Well, the, the therapist said, Randy, I don't want you to read the book. You can read it later. You could do whatever later on. But she, Dr. Fuller asked me fill out near the end of the book, a chart that asked a bunch of questions, about 50 questions. And you check. Yeah, I have this. Mm-hmm. I experience this. I'm experiencing that a lot. And I said, hesitantly, I filled it out and I scored a rather high score, which meant I had severe PTSD and I needed help and I needed help now. And um, Dr. Fuller quickly realized that that was the situation. That was my problem. And the first thing, I guess like an alcoholic, maybe, is uh, the realization of what you have mm-hmm. and that you need help and that you need help now for a whole lot of reasons. I realized that, but I also was hesitant to take a lot of action. You know, I didn't want to take those, those psychedelic or psychotropic. I didn't want to, I didn't want to take meds. I wasn't going to stay there. And I wanted to know that I wasn't, Gonna, mm-hmm. gonna help. Uh, I wasn't willing to share a whole lot, but go ahead, Bob. Well, but along the way, you did begin to share, and <clears throat> for that matter, began to uh, 
identify the feelings that uh, were causing such pain and, and upheaval in your life. So, I mean, there were some really uh, very healthy actions that you were taking. And I, I bring that up because along the way, uh, in fact, let me ask you about this date and what it means to you. May 11th, 2019. Does that date mean something to you? Absolutely. What happened? I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little emotional, but uh, just, just when you bring up that date, um, that was the date I went on the honor flight, Stars and Stripes honor flight out of Milwaukee, early in the morning to late at night. I was hesitant to go on the honor flight. I didn't want to. I didn't want to relive relive the memories that I was working on my PTSD for. And Bob, I'm not a hero. I'm no hero. I'm a Marine that did his job in Vietnam. I didn't want to go on the honor flight. I didn't want to take a seat away from a real hero that deserved to go more than I did. I didn't want to go. But my wife suggested it. I heard it was a good thing. It would be a big help. I got to the airport very early, sat around, had coffee, wearing my blue jacket. And on the back of that jacket, which I I live that saying every day of my life, Every day is a bonus. I didn't realize how important that would be until later on in the day. But I was yucking it up with about 400 other veterans that were going to go on the other, the two planes that we went to Washington, D.C. for a day trip to see the, the monuments, including our wall, the Vietnam Wall. We were yucking it up and having a good time. And we got on the airplane. We had some good chow and good coffee and good BS and a whole hell of a lot of fantastic camaraderie from World War II veterans, Korean veterans, and Vietnam veterans. We ended up getting to Washington, and it was a one heck of a, a great trip. We actually went to Baltimore. Welcome Home uh, group was there. We got a police escort to Washington. And they dropped me off and my guardian at the Washington Monument. I, I'm sorry, the Lincoln, the Lincoln Monument. And we walked up the stairs. I was there with my uh, my Marine brat guardian, whose dad was a Marine. Of course, you we, can see the Vietnam Wall from the Lincoln Memorial steps, can't you? I knew exactly where it was, Bob. Yeah. Exactly. Standing on the top of that memorial. And I looked to my left and I know exactly where it was. Where we were going to go next, you know where we were going to go next. The right Vietnam there. Memorial. Yeah. I didn't know if I could make it. My legs were also shaking. I didn't know if I could make it there. But without my guardian, I wouldn't have gone, Bob. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have gone. Um, I, 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 I wouldn't have made it without my guardian. But we made it. We entered the, the Vietnam Wall Memorial where there's 58,300 heroes, my buddies, our brothers and sisters on that wall. And as soon as we got to the wall, Bob, something, I I sensed something remarkably strange. I didn't know what it was. It was a feeling of some kind of energy, something that I couldn't put my finger on. But you know what, Bob? I put my finger on it right away. 
I went to the wall and I touched the wall in each panel and each panel felt different. And to this day, it wasn't the warmth of the sun on that sunny day. It was all those people, all those veterans on each of those panels. And they all felt different, different as night and day because of the different people's names that were on that wall. I eventually went to the wall where my buddy's name was at. And you've seen the picture I have. I carry with me every day. Me standing at the wall, touching my buddy and having a conversation with my buddy like I'm talking with you, Bob. No, there's no alcohol on the honor flight. There's no drugs on the honor flight. I was I was awake as can be. And my guardian was right behind me. And I was talking with my buddy like I'm talking with you. It was shocking. It was unbelievable. I stood there for a lot of minutes talking. And Bob, a surprise. I got a gift at the wall standing there at that moment, that exact moment. Bob, for 55 years, since April 1st, 1965, when I hit boot camp, I lost my emotions, everything. I lost everything. I didn't cry. You know, Bob, there's no crying in boot camp. There's no crying as a Marine. There's no crying in Vietnam. There's no crying as a air traffic controller. I didn't cry. But you know what happened at that moment? I became wet, not from the sun, shining off that black granite wall I was standing by. But I was crying, and I didn't stop. I couldn't stop. I left that wall soaking wet. My emotions, the gift of honor flight, gave me back my emotions, gave me the will, the will to go on and deal with PTSD. I owe that to family. I owe that to my friends on the wall, the heroes on the wall. I walked out of that Vietnam memorial, but I didn't I didn't stop until we got to a bench right at the exit. And I told my guardian, I need to sit. <laughs> I need to sit, Bob. I, I was drained. I had the adrenaline going. I was drained. I was crying. I was a soaking wet Marine that was going to move on with my life. What a gift I got at that moment, at that second in time. That picture I have that I carry in my back pocket was taken from many yards away by the Stars and Stripes Honor Flight photographer. That is a good friend of mine. That's a award-winning photographer, award-winning photograph that saved my life. What a transformation. Um, my, 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 my psychiatrist, I came back and I downloaded all the pictures and I went to uh, my uh, group PTSD meeting and a lot of issues that goes on at those PTSD therapy meetings. But I took about 45 mi minutes and I showed all my pictures and I couldn't stop crying for 45 mm -hmm. minutes. Everybody else was crying. My therapist was crying. Um, and they couldn't believe the transformation that overtook me on that moment, on that day, 
coming home, I, I didn't need any more coming home on the honor flight. I didn't need, I didn't need anything. I had all that I ever, ever wanted or could want in my whole entire life at that moment. I came home back to Milwaukee and I knew that airport because I worked there over 35 years. You know what happens on a Saturday night, on a normal Saturday night at Milwaukee Mitchell Field? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing, Bob. But I got off that airplane and there were bagpipes playing, which was unusual. Walked through a bunch of veterans, hundred, hundred of hundreds of people that were standing there in the concourse saluting us veterans as we got off the airplane. Then we walked down the concourse to the terminal, Bob, and I could hear this tremendous amount of noise. What could that possibly be? Trump, it was, it was a racket I've never heard before, certainly not on a Saturday night. I got out in the, from the tunnel, and there were 6,000 people there, Bob, welcoming us home. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a welcome home, Bob. We were told to take off our uniform, to go to Chicago, to go home. Don't talk about Vietnam. Don't wear your uniform. Don't tell anybody you're a veteran. But we've got 6,000 people grabbing us, hugging us, signs, welcome home. Changed my life, Bob, forever. A gift from Honor Flight. And I, my experience helped me with PTSD, changed my life dramatically. And that's another part of the suggested therapy. I'm no doctor. I'm a Marine. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't tell people about medication or therapy, just my experience, but I've changed. I've got friends, veteran friends. I'm in chapter one with the brotherhood that is so strong and the camaraderie, the breakfast on Friday, life is good. You know, I I think that, um, one of the best aspects of the stigma-free vet zone podcast at the core is this message of hope that really we're hearing you describe in marvelous uh, detail. And we've heard this from other veterans that have uh, been kind enough to visit with us. Let me ask you what, if you could recommend to any veteran that is struggling, and certainly there are high numbers of uh, Iraq uh, war veterans, Gulf War veterans, uh, veterans from Afghanistan, still Vietnam veterans that continue to, to struggle with um, demons and, and memories, et cetera. What would you encourage them to do at whatever point in life they may be to try to begin to uh, receive some of the, the hope that you yourself are experiencing so deeply. Stop and try and assess your situation, which is probably not good. Acknowledge, if you can, that there's a problem, that you may not know what the problem is, but there's a problem. There's a problem that's affecting your family severely. There's a problem that's affecting you severely. Do not, I repeat, do not do something stupid. Do not do something that will result in ending one's life that is forever, that you can't change. Be aware 
of a need for help. Go to your somebody you trust. Go to a therapist, maybe you know. My suggestion is I got help from the VA. The VA, as we know, for us old veterans, the VA was not always a great place to go. Not maybe your first stop. For us in Milwaukee, we are extremely lucky. Call the VA. Call the crisis line if it's a crisis. Family, call the crisis line for your veteran, for your spouse. Get them some help. But for us, the VA, Zablocki VA, I could tell you from experience, great experience they have. Medical College of Wisconsin doctors, my good friend, Dr. Michael McBride, one of the great psychiatrists in maybe the whole wide world, is one who cares. He's a veteran himself. He knows. He knows your situation. They will get your get you some help immediately. Accept that help. They know that you won't be open to uh, expressing all your um, experiences and everything. They are there to help. They are, they do care. Uh, my experiences, it will help to to change your life by your awareness, by running to get some help, by changing your life. As I mentioned before, the term I always use from the honor flight is every day is a bonus. It's a bonus for me. Make that the same for yourself. Talk to people who have been on the honor flight. Maybe go on the honor flight. It may take some time, help from the VA, but maybe look at going on the honor flight. I was healed at the wall. Well, you're never healed, Bob, right? You're never completely healed. But the tools you get to deal with in daily life will help you, will help your family, will develop, help you develop better relationships. It will save your life. It will save your life. You were in Vietnam. You were in Afghanistan. You fought a war. You did what you were told. It's not your fault. It's not something to do a guilt trip on. Yes, we wish we did more for our buddies that didn't make it home. But save yourself. You, 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 you deserve that. Get some I want, to ask a, I want to make sure that we touch on one more thing. You mentioned the Medical College of Wisconsin that uh, trains young doctors, and they make a rotation, many of them, through uh, the Veterans uh, Hospital, the Zablocki Hospital. And you've had an opportunity to work with some of those uh, third-year medical students. And I think uh, it's amazing because, number one, it's a very generous thing for you to do. And uh, to me, it represents this 180-degree turn that you've made from kind of isolating and closing inside yourself after retirement to opening up and, and having new experiences, et cetera, and now working with the doctors that uh, the students, when they become doctors, in many cases, will be working directly with veterans. So that must be a pretty satisfying endeavor that uh, you're participating in. It's extremely rewarding. In fact, we have a vet clinic 
with the third year medical students this week with a group of other veterans, third year medical students from the Medical College of Wisconsin, Dr. McBride and others. And we sit down and we get interviewed with the young doctors and we tell our story. We allow them to ask us any questions, which I never possible, never could have answered years ago. But we sit down and many of them are doing a rotation at the Zablock EVA. Many of them heretofore have never met a veteran, have never dealt with a veteran. You know, Bob, we're a closed-knit group. We don't share things. How can, how can they possibly help us if we don't share things? We don't trust. We don't trust doctors. We're annoyed with doctors. Go to a doctor. What do they do? They sit. They got 15 minutes. They sit at a computer and take notes, which drives us batty most of the time. Um, we want doctors that care. Like I say to them, these young doctors, I said, you really got a, a tough job. You're sitting in front of a veteran that's coming to you with a severe problem and needs to be fixed completely, 100% by you in that 15 minutes you have. And we're not going to talk to you because we don't trust you. How do you deal with that? And that's what we're trying to give them is you need to establish a level of trust. If you think, Bob, and, and one thing I tell them is if you think you can't do anything in that very, very short 15 minutes, guess what? You're talking to a Marine that somebody took the time at the VA to give them this book, The Tears of a Warrior, Dr. Fuller, and assessed me in 15 minutes and saved my life. I don't know where I would have been if it wasn't for those 15 minutes and getting the assessment. So can you do something in 15 minutes? Maybe not establish complete trust, but a certain level of getting something done. We, 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 give, we give these young students some tools to deal with veterans. Uh, no, we don't know about any, anything about medic, medicine, about doctoring, about psychiatry, but we know about trust. And we give them a challenge coin at the end. And a challenge coin has, it, has on it written along with picture of the VA. And, and, but on the back is very, very important. What's we, don't want, we, don't, we, we don't want to know how much you know. We just want to know how much you care. And that's, that's really that's what we powerful. want them to, to look at in their practice. Mm -hmm. Not their diploma, not their certificates, not their certifications. But you know what? If you don't give the impression how much you care, at least to me, at least to veterans that I know, we're going to walk out of your office and guess what's going to happen? You ain't going to see us again because mm -hmm. we don't trust you to help us. And we may go out and do something that is not very favorable to our life. Mm -hmm. But something you may say may give somebody a little bit of trust in you to come back for another appointment or two or three or four. And they may lead to months or years. And it may lead to saving somebody's life, a veteran's life. 
Randy, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, <clears throat> this is it's a wonderful message of uh, of renewal and discovery and and so many things that uh, represent in some ways, I guess you could call it almost a second life that you've described to us that you're living and living it very fully. We can just, of course, our listeners don't have the ability to see you as, as I can via our Zoom meeting, but I can just see a, a really a, a glow about you that um, I have a feeling probably wasn't there until you began this journey of of self-discovery that's been so powerful. Congratulations on doing that. Well, thanks, Bob. And coming from you, my brother, I, and I know you didn't mention it, but you are a veteran. You're a brother. You're part of the brotherhood and the incredible work that you do along with Michael Orban and, and, and so many others. Uh, but I plead with people is get help. Don't live with this thing we deal with. We earn the right to have a good life. And I apologize to you, Bob, for going on and on and on. <laughs> You've got some editing to do. Well, let me say you didn't go on and on and on. You told a compelling first person story that uh, really doesn't require editing. You're just a gem, Randy. Thank you for joining us. Again, no hero, no gem. I just want to help, and if what I can say helps others, run, don't stop, get some help, and every day is a bonus. We have been visiting with Randy Zemmel, Vietnam veteran and honor flight participant, and uh, listening to his thoughts about recovery, really, uh, following his experiences from so many years ago. I want to thank you for joining us today and tuning into the Stigma-Free Vet Zone. Our podcast is made possible by grants from foundations. They uh, actually wish to remain anonymous, but uh, we also benefit from donations from our listeners. I want to say thanks to our producer and editor, Carrie Wheaton. And on behalf of Mike Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.